So we'll read um, the Tenth Commandment, Exodus 20, verse 17, and then Colossians 3. Verse 17 says, You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet, covet your neighbor, neighbor's wife, nor his male servant, nor his female servant, nor his ox, nor his donkey, nor anything that is your neighbor's. And then, in Paul's letter to the Colossians, Beginning at verse 5. I'm going to begin at verse 1 just so we get a little bit of the context there. Colossians 3, 1. If then you were raised with Christ, seek those things which are above, which, or rather, where Christ is. Sitting at the right hand of God, set your mind on things above, not on things on the earth. For you die, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, appears, then you also will appear with Him in glory. Therefore, put to death your members which are on the earth, fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. So let us pray again. Lord, we do. Thank you for your word. We ask now for the blessing of it. It's reading and preaching by your spirit. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. So have you ever been to the doctor and uh, had an MRI exam? When I was a kid, I had migraine headaches and uh, got to the point where the doctor thought maybe something was wrong with my head. And many people still think that today. But uh, I went, what amounted to an MRI back then, maybe a CAT scan or something like that. They lie down on this table. They um, fasten your head, really, so you can't move to the right or left. You're not supposed to move an inch. And this table slides you into this very, well, this uh, cylindrical, huge apparatus. And these things are spinning around you, taking these images left and right. And uh, it's not the most pleasant experience. It's rather uncomfortable. If you've ever had one, you'll know. But it is a good thing. It serves a good purpose. It's been designed carefully uh, to bring healing. And it brings healing, first of all, by exposing hidden health issues. It might be your brain. It might be your heart, your spine, or something like that. And though it's uncomfortable, if one is willing to endure that examination, uh, he does so because of the healing it can bring. Now the MRI cannot bring the healing. It can expose what is underneath your skin, that which is wrong. But you need a good physician to bring that healing. Well, as we've been studying the Ten Commandments and the moral law of God, the moral law of God is much like an MRI, isn't it? It's not always very pleasant. Um, In fact, it can be uncomfortable when we consider the uh, breadth and the depth of the commandments, how they apply to our everyday lives. But as Paul says in Romans 7, 12, the law and the commandment is holy, righteous, and good. It's been put together very carefully by God Himself. 
And it can bring healing. Psalm 19 says that the law of the Lord converts the soul. Well, how does it do that? By exposing our own issues, that which lies underneath. In Romans 7 and verse 7, Paul says that the law brings the knowledge of sin. And so it exposes our own hearts. For instance, again, in Romans 7, Paul points out, he says, I would not have known thou shalt not covet that commandment unless the law had said you shall not covet. Now, like an MRI, the law of God cannot bring healing in and of itself. We need a physician And as you know, the great physician is Jesus himself. He is the one who brings that healing to us. It's through him, it's through his gospel that the healing comes. And so as we talk about the last of the Ten Commandments tonight, we'll talk about uh, what it means to covet, and uh, we'll go from there. So first of all, let me just explain or give a definition of coveting uh, as it is found in the Ten Commandments, Exodus 20 there, verse 17. It says, you shall not covet. And the Hebrew word refers to the strong desire. Um, And in the context, it means this inordinate desire for another person's possession. Uh, Ungoverned, selfish desire. Now, not all desiring is evil and not all coveting is bad. Um, another word we use for covet is lust. And uh, perhaps you've heard someone, or you've said this, uh, you've heard someone say, well, I covet your prayers. And as a new Christian, I thought, well, we're not supposed to covet. You know, what does that mean? Well, that means I strongly desire your prayers. Uh, turn with me to Galatians chapter 5. Because Paul there talks about coveting and lusting. And often as Christians, when we think about lusting, we think of one thing. We think of it being, first of all, evil by definition. And we think of it in a physical way. But Paul says in Galatians 5.16, I say then, walk in the Spirit. We don't have time to unpack that, but what that does mean is that you're full of Scripture, the Word of God, you're staying in prayer, and you're keeping in step with the Spirit, you're following God's Word. You're full of the Spirit and you're full of the Word. And he says, if you do this, if you walk in the Spirit, he says, and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. For the lust, or rather for the flesh, lusts against the Spirit and the Spirit against the flesh. These are contrary to one another so that you do not do the things you or that you wish. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. That is, under its curse. And so the point is, is that your flesh, uh, that remaining sin that that we all have as Christians, it has certain desires. And those are evil desires. And they're contrary to what God desires from us. And yet, if you're a Christian, if you're truly born again, you have the Spirit. You've been sealed with the Spirit. And so the Spirit brings uh, to us a new heart. And new desires, new lust, good desires, good lust. And so the spirit lust or desires for things that are contrary to what the spirit desires. And so the idea here is that we are to yield to the Holy Spirit 
We're to walk in the Spirit and therefore not fulfill the lust of the flesh. Um, in Colossians 3, we just read that. Perhaps you noted that Paul says something about covetousness. In Colossians 3, 5, uh, he says, we're to put these things to death. We're not to toy with them. We're not to um, piddle with them. No, we are to run from them. We're to kill them. The things which are on the earth, what are they? Our members, fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Covetousness, that internal evil desire is idolatry. Now, when we talk about its definition, not all desire is evil. I think I've already shown that. But when we think about water, food, clothing, our spouses, things that God has given to us, lawful things, it's not evil to desire them. In fact, in Ecclesiastes 5.18, it talks about this. It says it is good and fitting to eat and drink and to enjoy oneself and all one's labor in which he toils under the sun during the few days of his life which God has given him, for this is his reward. We talk about the fruits of our labors, and we enjoy them. We can enjoy them, and they're the simple things in life. I can recall when I was in California, um, that you know, I had to go to Presbytery out there. Often it was in the Bay Area, so I lived in Central, and so that meant I had to drive four and a half hours. Uh, and uh, go to the Bay Area to have Presbytery. Well, there was a retired minister in our congregation, and uh, he loved In-N-Out Burger. If you don't know about it, if you ever go out west, you have to have an In-N-Out Burger. It's one of my favorite ever. I don't feel terrible, and it just it, after I eat it, it tastes great. But he he always made sure that on the way up to Presbytery, that we would stop and have lunch at In-N-Out Burger, whether it was twelve o'clock or three o'clock, whatever. And uh, I remember one time it just struck me. We sat, here's this, you know, nearly 80-year-old man, minister, retired minister. And he prayed before we ate. And he just thanked God for the delight that this cheeseburger was going to bring him and these fries. (laughs) These simple things. I mean, can you imagine just eating the same thing every day, three times a day? And so that's, that's good. And that really struck me, obviously. Um, So when we we think about covetousness, this is what um, the reformer John Calvin said. He he says, really, they're they're often two extremes when it comes to this topic. He says, this was in his day, placing an angelical perfection in poverty as if it were impossible to cultivate piety or godliness and to serve God, unless riches are cast away. And I I think perhaps he's referring to monasticism. Maybe you've heard of St. Benedict. He had the Benedictine rule that if you wanted to be a monk, you had to take the vow of chastity, poverty, and obedience. He says, well, there's that thought. You can't have riches. On the other hand, he says, we must beware of the opposite evil, lest riches should cast a stumbling block in our way. Or should burden us that we should the less readily advance toward the kingdom of heaven. And so riches can be a stumbling block. Riches can cause people to fall away 
from the faith. But really, it's the heart that causes that, but the means can be riches. Um, But when we look at the Scriptures, there are those in Scripture, I think they're few and far between, who God has blessed with many material things. As God called Abraham out of the land of Ur, converted Abraham, and it was through Abraham that the Messiah would come and that the people of God would come, actually. And so before Israel came, you had Abraham, and, and God blessed him greatly. In fact, in Genesis 13, too, it says that Abraham was very rich in livestock, silver, and gold. Job himself had many possessions, of course. Uh, in Job 1, the Lord allowed uh, Satan to, to strike uh, Job's household, and uh, Job lost everything, his children, the only thing that Satan left was his wife, and yet in the end, in Job 42, after he went through that trial, he lost his health for a season, and uh, he, he didn't curse God, he was exalted, he's really a picture of Christ, I think, he was humiliated, in the end he's exalted, but in Job 42, verse 12, it says, now the Lord blessed the latter days of Job, more than his beginning, for he had 14,000 sheep, 6,000 camels, 1,000 yoke of oxen, and 1,000 female donkeys. And so Job had more in the end than he had in the beginning. And the Savior, Jesus himself, warns us about riches, doesn't he? Treasures on earth. In Matthew six nineteen through 24, He says that we are to seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness and all these things will be added to us. He says we're we're not to to store up treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, but we're to store up treasures in heaven. And He says where your heart is, there your treasure is. Or where your treasure is, there your heart is also. And uh, that can be very convicting. I used to say this, I guess I have to say, you know, check your online account. But I used to say, check your checkbook. And you can see where your heart is, right? Um, We have many necessities of life these days, uh, but there are many things as well that we enjoy, and perhaps we enjoy them too well. Um, And so covetousness uh, is an unseen, often unseen to us individually, and a grave danger. It begins in the heart. Thomas Watson The old Puritan. Here's some of the things he said about covetousness. He says, first of all, it is an enemy to grace. I think that's obvious. We've just seen that. It dampens the good affections. And so when our hearts are consumed with something that may not be sinful in and of itself, when our hearts are consumed with that, we desire it, we don't have it, and we pursue it, um, it can dampen our good affections, our affections for God for Christ Himself, for His church, for godliness. And He also says it is the mother sin. When you think about it, um, why do people steal and break that commandment? Because they see something their neighbor has. I've got to have it. It's mine. If it's not nailed down, it's mine. So I'm going to just take it. Or why do people murder? Often for the same reason, because of money, the love of money, or something that someone has. Do you remember around 1990 when Air Jordans became really popular? Some of you weren't around then. But um, 
Those shoes were expensive. I'd never had any. Didn't really want them, but um, a lot of kids did. I don't know if it was in New York, but uh, this one kid, he had a pair of Air Jordans that were really costly. Someone murdered him so that they could take and steal those shoes. He coveted his neighbor's shoes. And so, yeah, it's a mother's sin. Watson was right. Um, And so that's coveting. That's the thing that the commandment forbids. Let's talk now about the biblical examples of coveting. There are quite a few. Um, There's the rich young ruler. He comes to Jesus and uh, he, you know, acted like he professed to have obeyed all the commandments since his youth. Um, And Jesus says to him, well, you still lack one thing. Just one, one little thing. Take your possessions. Sell everything. And give it to the poor. And Luke tells us that that man walked away very sad, Luke 18, 23, for he was very rich. His desire, his covetousness for worldly things kept him from coming to Jesus. There's David. Um, he saw another man's wife. He wanted her. Um, he coveted her. He committed adultery with her. Then he had to cover it up. And guess what? He ended up having Uriah, this woman's husband, murdered. So there's theft, there's adultery, there's murder. And of course, as we've already seen, idolatry because David desired that more than he desired God and obedience to God. There was Ahab, remember him in 1 Kings 21. He saw a vineyard. He wanted Naboth's vineyard. So he just basically had him killed. Stole his vineyard. 1 Kings 21.10. Jeremiah 2, it talks about God's people. And and we, even though this is the Old Testament, we, we have to understand that we are susceptible to this, even as Christians living in this world. And Bunyan talks about that in Pilgrim's Progress, right? Well, in Jeremiah 2, uh, in verse 13, God brings this accusation against His people. Verse 11, rather, says, Has a nation changed its gods, which are not gods? But my people have changed their glory, which is God Himself. For what does not profit? Be astonished, O heavens, at this, and horribly afraid. Be very desolate, says the Lord. For my people have committed two evils. Jeremiah 2.13 They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewn, or made for themselves, cisterns, broken cisterns, that can hold no water. There's the futility of idolatry. Here's God offering Himself to His people. And He says that He is the fountain of living water. But His people have gone after other gods and it is as if they have made these cisterns themselves. They're pathetic. They leak water and they try to drink from it but they don't get enough. Isn't that the way of the world? It's like the dog returning to his vomit. This is what we do when we don't know Christ. We go to our idols repeatedly, as is indicated there. And I think about Adam and Eve. They 
basically coveted something other than God. They were told, you will be like God. They were not content with God's promise. They did not trust God, and therefore they committed idolatry and coveted that which was forbidden. So so those are some biblical examples. We've seen a little bit about the definition of covetousness. We've seen biblical examples. Let's talk now about deliverance from this sin, deliverance from the power of covetousness. And uh, I just immediately go to John chapter 4, because there's a woman at the well, right? Jesus has this appointment with her. He purposely goes through Samaria, which the Jews walked around that city in those days, and he meets this woman at the well. And Jesus knows her lifestyle. He confronts her about it. She had had all these husbands before. The one with whom she was at the time was not her husband. He asked for a drink of water. But then he says to her in John 4.10, Jesus, he says to her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him. And he would have given you living water. And she says, sir, you have nothing to draw with. Where do you get this water? Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us the well and drank from it himself? He goes on. Jesus answered and said, whoever drinks of this water will thirst again, but whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst. But the water that I will give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. And of course she continues the dialogue. I think she's converted. She leaves her water pot there and runs off to the city and tells others about Jesus. She finally is satisfied. Her soul's thirst is finally satisfied because she met Christ Jesus. And so truly, the issue and problem and sin of our coveting can only be met and resolved through the person and work of Jesus Christ. We have to become satisfied in Him. And that's part of the Gospel offer in John 6. You know, He says He's the bread that's come down from heaven. He says, I am the bread of life. He who comes to Me shall never hunger. And he who believes in Me shall never thirst. You know, some of you know, I, I, it's few and far between that I have them, but those, those garlic rolls at Provino's, the hot ones, the warm ones, are so good. Their purpose is to soak in the garlic butter and to sop up the, as the Italians call it, the gravy, the uh, tomato sauce, spaghetti sauce. It's just so good. But one's not enough. But if you eat of Christ, the true bread of life, you will be satisfied. Again, He's living water. He said that in Jeremiah 2. He said that here in John chapter 4. Hebrews 13.5 says, Let your conduct be without covetousness. Be content with such things as you have. For He Himself has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. And so this indeed is the solution. It's the gospel. It's Christ Himself. So whether if it's you know your neighbor's car, that car you see in traffic, you know, for me it might have a little muscle, it might just sound perfect. 
have a deep resonance to its exhaust. There might be comfort moving towards that direction now, getting older, luxury, or that job that you don't have. Um, Maybe it is another person's spouse. Clothing. A golf club. A new shiny iron that makes you hit it straight every time. That iron doesn't exist, by the way, if you've ever played golf. Um, And so Jesus Himself is the solution. Well, since we talked about this, let me just end here with several helps to fight coveting. You know, as Christians, we still sin. Um, In case you haven't figured that out, we do. Even pastors. Um, As our confession says, our catechism says, in thought, word, and deed, daily. So first of all, if we are to fight it, if we are to overcome it, we do what Jesus told us to do, and that is to seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. Um, I remember as a new Christian, I was headed to college, Georgia State. I forgot where I found it. Maybe I was on vacation. I was. I was on vacation. I saw this poster in Florida, and I bought it. And it was a poster of this mansion on a hill in Malibu. And it had a five-car garage. And in the five bays of that garage were exotic cars. And it had these words on the top. It said, justification for higher education. I'm going to go, I'm going to get my degree, and I'm going to have this stuff. And the Lord has a sense of humor. While it is true, I did not take the vows of Benedict. Um, The Lord called me into ministry. And uh, here I am. He taught me otherwise. And Jesus says in Matthew 6.33, But seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things shall be added to you. He's talking about food and clothing. The necessities of life. That's all we need. And so we find contentment in Christ. And if you haven't caught it yet, that is the prescription. It's contentment in what God has given to us. So seek God's kingdom first and His righteousness in Christ. Second, uh, honor the Lord with your possessions. Proverbs 3.9 says, Honor the Lord from your wealth and from the first of all your produce. So your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will overflow with wine. Um, If we were a health, wealth, and prosperity church, I suppose at this point I would say the more you give, the more God's going to give to you financially, and that's nowhere taught in Scripture. However, God loves a cheerful giver. And Proverbs here talks about the Lord blessing us as we faithfully give to Him. It's an act of faith, by the way. You know, whether it's the Lord's Day, getting our work done in six days, setting aside one day at seven, or whether it's giving our finances to the Lord, the first fruits of what He gives to us, both of those are an act of faith. Tithing our time, tithing our finances, our resources, our acts of faith. We're saying, okay, Lord, You've given me this. I'm going to give this back to You. And so I'm trusting You to help me survive and to provide for my family. Um, I realize there are seasons where things are tight. And maybe maybe we've made bad choices. Um, And so we have to ask the question, 
Is it a need or a want? And we dare not rob God. In Malachi 3.8 it says, Will a man rob God? Yet you have robbed me. But you say, in what way have we robbed you? God says, in tithes and offerings. And uh, again, there, I know there are seasons and things happen, but the goal is to get out of debt. And uh, you know, you can't get blood from a turnip. That's one of the good things about Dave Ramsey's Financial Peace University. He makes the point that, you know, well, first of all, pastors, we're, in, we're comfortable asking for money. And yes, sometimes we, we struggle giving as well. Um, but Dave Ramsey makes the point, if, if God's people are struggling and they're overextended and they're giving a third to the government, then it's hard to ask them for more or for them to give more. And so you have to get out of debt so that you can live accordingly as much as possible. See, honor the Lord with your possessions. Third, you put possessions in their proper perspective. In Proverbs 10, 2, it says, it is the blessing of the Lord that makes rich and he adds no sorrow to it. Um, if all we do is eat, drink, and sleep money, in fact, we don't often sleep because of money, then that's not God's blessing. Because if God blesses you, he adds no sorrow to it. Um, again, that takes faith. First Timothy 6, verse 6, it says, Now godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into this world, and it is certain we can carry nothing out. And having food and clothing with these, we shall be content. We don't have King Tut's mindset that all of our riches are going to be buried with us in our tomb because that's where we're going in the next life. We're going to be wealthy in the next life now and take our riches with us now. With food and clothing, with these, Paul says, we shall be content. 1 Timothy 6, 17, it says, Instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. That's well balanced, isn't it? He's given us these blessings, whatever it is, to whatever degree, to enjoy. We don't trust in them. We trust in God. Then Paul tells Timothy, instruct them to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, storing up for themselves the treasure of a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is life indeed. And then last... You have to realize that it takes faith in the promises of God. If you are going to fight covetousness and fight the American way, in that sense, it's going to take faith in the promises of God. That is to find contentment in this life. Paul said this in Philippians 4, beginning at verse 11. Not that I speak in regard to need, for I have learned in whatever state I am to be content. I know how to be abased. I know how to abound. Everywhere and in all things, I've learned both to be full and to be hungry. I mean, if my, yesterday in Presbytery, I heard another stomach in there, by the way. But my stomach started to make noises, and I, got, I had to get up and go get some crackers. But it's rare that my stomach does that because it's rare that I'm actually that hungry. But I have the understanding that Paul 
He was very hungry at times. And he says in those circumstances, whether he was full or hungry, whether he abounded or he suffered need, he says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I've shared with you, one way the Lord gets my attention is through finances. I'm just throwing it out there and letting you know. And it's always been like that. I get a little bit, maybe some of a bill comes. Okay, Lord, trust me. I'm not starving, you know that. I'm not complaining. I'm just telling you how the Lord deals with me and this is an issue in my life. And so Paul, he can do, he can endure every circumstance through Christ who strengthens him. Then there's Asaph, Psalm 73. He looked out, well, first of all, he was in the temple. He served God in that way. And uh, he often had to wash his hands and do all of these things. And he says, have I washed my hands in vain? Have I served God in vain? Why? He looked out into the world. He saw the wicked. They were prospering. You know, kind of like, I know this is politically incorrect. I don't care. A third world, third world country might look at Americans today and they see that we have a weight problem, right? Because we are wealthy and we eat a lot. And like food is at you know, our fingertips at all times. And that's, in one sense, a blessing. It can become a curse. But Asaph, he saw that the, the wicked prospered and they were overweight and their eyes bulged because they were so heavy. And he thought, am I, am I really serving God in vain here? And of course, he goes into the temple and he sees their end. God turns him around and he sees that the wicked will suffer in hell forever. And by the time he gets to the end of the psalm, he says this. And remember, as a priest, he didn't get land like the other tribes in Israel. God told the priest, I am your inheritance. Here's what he said at the end. He says to the Lord, whom have I in heaven but you? And there is none upon the earth that I desire beside you. My flesh and my heart fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. God is my inheritance. Quoted Hebrews 13.5. Talks about covetousness. And then it says, For God says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. How does that tie into covetousness? Because God is your inheritance, Christian. God is your portion. God is your strength. God is your satisfaction. So the prescription for contentment, or rather, the prescription for covetousness is contentment. And then contentment says, I have God for my inheritance. Therefore, I have more than enough. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we thank You for Your goodness to us. We thank You for Your Word, which the Good Shepherd uses to keep us in the fold. We pray that You would help us to turn from this sin as well and to trust You and to find our contentment fully and totally in You and in Christ by Your Spirit. We pray in His name. Amen.